I'll be reading in Spanish. The English text will be on the screen as I read. Así dice el Señor Todopoderoso. Reflexionen sobre su proceder. Vayan ustedes a los montes, traigan madera y reconstruyan mi casa. Yo veré su reconstrucción con gusto y manifestaré mi gloria, dice el Señor. Ustedes esperan mucho, pero cosechan poco. Lo que almacenan en su casa, yo lo disipo de un soplo. ¿Por qué? Porque mi casa está en ruinas, mientras ustedes solo se ocupan de la suya, afirma el Señor Todopoderoso. Por eso, por culpa de ustedes, los cielos retuvieron el rocío y la tierra se negó a dar sus productos. Yo hice venir una sequía sobre los campos y las montañas, sobre el trigo y el vino nuevo, sobre el aceite fresco y el fruto de la tierra, sobre los animales y los hombres, y sobre toda la obra de sus manos. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning, church. My name is Brian. If I've never met you, I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity City Church. Wait for that to go away. Um, some couple of things that are different for, in terms of uh, children's ministry. One, uh, we do have uh, child care from uh, birth through five years old, uh, and we typically have been doing some rehearsal for um, kids' choir that will be uh, doing a little bit of music here in a couple of weeks, but they will be taking this Sunday off uh, for uh, the children's choir. Last week, we wrapped up a sermon series called Out of Context. Now we're back to going through a book of the Bible, and we're into the Old Testament with the book of Haggai. Very small book, just a couple chapters in this book, and it will just take us four weeks to go through the whole uh, book, and it would take you just minutes to read the whole thing. Uh, so if you've never read the book of Haggai, it's, it's one of those uh, books of the Bible that you'll probably have to go to the table of contents first for uh, your Bible to try to figure out where it is because you'll just pass right over it. Uh, but it's an Old Testament book. It's very, very rich, and I uh, can't wait to introduce it to you this morning and why we are preaching through this book. But first, let's pray before we dive into it. Let's pray. Lord, we anticipate and we are hopeful that once again you will speak because your word is clear and it's always available for us to turn to your word, to read it and to hear you and to have your word transform our life. So Lord, help us to hear it today. Help us to hear how we can apply it to all the various aspects of our life. And also, Lord, help us to, to see your glory, to behold you, Lord, because we know that when we see and we hear you, our lives are changed, our joy increases, and grace is experienced. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So why did I pick this book? Well, this is an Old Testament book that is a great reminder that just because a season of life changes or your circumstances might change, a chapter of your life may change, it doesn't mean that your relationship with the Lord will necessarily change either. 
This church year, I've been saying that our kind of theme for our church ministry year that is the, is the same of uh, as an academic calendar year, uh, the theme for it has been revive. And one of the reasons we chose that as church leaders is because there's this sense that we're coming out of some tough times. We're coming out of COVID and some, some divisive times, some, some times in our city that have experienced a little bit unrest. And on the other side of that, if you look at Scripture, one of the things that the Lord is after is our hearts and to revive our hearts after we have experienced seasons of trouble. And we might feel like that, like finally, okay, things are kind of going back to normal, and it's going to be great, and all my life is going to kind of be put back together now that the season of difficulty seems to be changing into a different season. And Haggai is a, is a book that is a giant reminder that that is not necessarily that your circumstances, your experiences, and a lot of other things can change in your life, but there might be some deep things going in your heart that a change of scenery or seasons might not help with. It actually reminded me of an old SNL skit that I was recently saw again uh, from Adam Sandler. He plays this character where he's running a vacation uh, company called Romano Tours, and he has this big qualifier for his customers that go on his tours because he's taking people on tours to Italy. And he has this big qualifier just to set up uh, expectations. And this is like one of the slides he shows in the skit that he says, if you are sad at home and you go on one of our tours and we take you all the way to Italy, the same sad you is now in Italy. And he set these expectations that we are a tour company and we will take you on travel and we can get you to Italy to experience all the sights. But if you're sad there, our vacation tour will not change that. Another way he unpacks it is with this slide. This is a, another thing that he starts to unpack. He says, this is what we can do for you. We can take you to Italy and take you on a hike, but we can't make you like hiking, right? That's, that's you. We can take you to the Italian Riviera, but we can't make you comfortable in a sweatsuit, right? We can't change that about your heart. Or we can take you to Italy and you can go on a zip line, but we can't have you experience uh, just screaming out the word, wee, and actually have you mean it in your heart, right? He, they can't do that by just transferring you to a different scenery or a different country. And I think the point here is one that uh, really speaks to a common human experience. And maybe to make it more theological, if you're struggling with your relationship with the Lord during difficult times, then that doesn't mean that you'll just not struggle with the Lord and your faith if things change, if things get better in your environment, if things get different in your surroundings. And again, Haggai is a book that deals with this common experience. We may be coming out of this season of pandemic and division and unrest, but there's a chance that if your relationship with the Lord was struggling then, even though things around you might be changing, that might be a consistent factor still in your life. That's what happened to God's people. Some of the background of the book of Haggai goes all the way back to where God's kingdom was united under King David and, and reached its pinnacle uh, under his son, King Solomon. And during Solomon's reign, too, things started to come undone for God's kingdom and his people. And it divides, and there's all these 
uh, political rulers that are leading God's people, but they're corrupt and they don't see, seek the Lord and God's people aren't seeking the Lord. And it reaches this breaking point when an exile happens and God's people are carried off into a foreign land that's not their home and they experience being apart from their home for 70 years. But now when we enter the book in the storyline of Haggai, the exiles have started to return. And one of the things that they might have been thinking is like, now that my situation has changed, everything in my life, including my faith, will now be put back together and it's going to be great. Now, in some senses, some things did get better. It's better to be back home rather than in exile. But what we'll soon see with God's people, that the struggle that they had in their faith in exile seems to have been carried back to their homeland when they go back to Jerusalem as well. And so we're going to look at, throughout this series, um, that reality in the book of Haggai into four parts. They're going to be a four-part series that will get us all the way through the season of Advent. Today's focus will be a revival that God is going to seek in his people in their priorities. Next week is a revival of expectations. The week after that, a revival of commitment. And then finally, hope. So let's get into this book. Let's look at the background first in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Haggai. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of uh, Joazadak, the high priest. So this is the setting. It's been 20 years since the first exiles have returned to their land. There was a, a different foreign king named King Cyrus who allowed these exiles to return, and now it's been replaced by a different king, foreign king, King Darius. And the opening verses give even a specific date and time when this takes place. In our calendar, it would be on August 29th, and the year is 520 B.C. And Haggai is the prophet that's mentioned right away. And Haggai is likely the main voice behind this book. And what's unique about Haggai is we know nothing about his personal life. We know nothing about his family background. If you went to, if he had like a Wikipedia page, like the whole personal life section would be completely missing. All that we know about this prophet is his vocation of a prophet and that he had the word of the Lord speak powerfully through him and that he was ministering in this time when the exiles were returning and they're rebuilding their life. That's what we know about him. And then two other people are mentioned, Zerubbabel, he's a, the main political leader over this region of, uh, uh, that God's people are returning to that included Jerusalem. And he's also, and this is going to be a very relevant detail later, he's the Old Testament king descendant of King David, uh, which will again be very relevant, relevant towards the end of this book. The other person mentioned, Joshua, and Joshua is a main religious leader, he's the great high priest over God's people. And so Haggai's word is coming to these leaders and through them to all of God's people. So that's the setting. He's speaking to this time that the exiles have returned. They've been there for a couple of decades, and they've started to rebuild uh, the temple, uh, but then they got distracted. And they're not continuing that work of rebuilding and reviving their life as they return to exile. So what's going on? Look at verses 2 through 3. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house, the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. 
Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? The Lord tells the prophet, my people are saying it's not time to rebuild my temple. And we know from other books of, like Ezra and other books that when they returned, they started to, as I mentioned, the foundation has been laid, but then no other work had been done. And part of the reason for that is that even though we, they returned from exile, they still had frustrating things happening in their life, including the relationship that they had with neighboring uh, people groups and nations. And that interfered with this process of rebuilding their lives and rebuilding the temple. So the project of rebuilding the temple, that has just been sitting there unfinished. And why didn't they finish it other than this broader background? Well, verse 3 says it's not because they didn't have time or resources to finish it. The Lord is asking through his prophet, is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? And at first, uh, when I read panel houses, I don't know if you have this experience where you're just honest about the first thing that runs through your head when you read a verse of the Bible. I just thought of like the 70s, like wood paneling that people put up in all their houses and that that nobody likes those things anymore and it really dates your your property, right? But that's not what they're, they're talking about because even that type of imagery hints more at like maybe extravagance that you're able to really get your home done done in all of the details, that's likely not what the Old Testament word behind this translated word, paneled houses, means. It's more like it's carrying the meaning of homes that are covered and boarded. In other words, that they're just finished, that they have a roof on, that they have walls, and that, that, they're, that they're complete, and it's compared to the Lord's house, his temple, that still just has the foundation laid, but it has no roof, no walls, it's, it's incomplete. So that's the main point. God's people can say that they didn't have time or it's not time to rebuild God's temple, but their own own houses testify that you had the time and the resources and the energy to do this, but you didn't do it. You neglected it. It's like starting a project, and maybe you've had this happen in your own life. You're starting a project at, at at your home, and it just ends up sitting there after you got it started for days and weeks and months. And why does it usually start to sit there? Because you get distracted and other things come up and other things interfere. You have the same amount of time, but it's just starting to be dedicated to to other things. And so, therefore, this project that you took on is being neglected. Now, it raises this question, and this is really important to understand. Why is rebuilding the temple such a big deal? This isn't some type of message where you you read a passage like this and it's like, all right, now let me talk to you about the church's capital campaign, right? That's sometimes how churches might pivot right now, right? It's just like, all right, we need to rebuild X, Y, Z, but the meaning is far richer than a physical structure. The meaning of the temple for God's people is that it symbolized their relationship with the Lord, and it was a place where God's presence dwelt. It was the place that said to the world and to God's people that I am with you. And there is this visible parallel between God's temple being destroyed and what the relationship is like between God's people and the Lord, that because the Lord's temple has been destroyed and is in ruin, so is their faith. That's kind of the nature of where God's people are and their status and their faith, that they too are just in, in, in rubble in terms of their relationship with the Lord. So if you rebuild that, 
even the physical structure in this sense, it's, it's symbolizing that they too are rebuilding their faith. So the fact that that hasn't happened yet speaks to a deeper reality that they don't care if God's presence is there with them yet. They haven't put that as a priority of their life. So, based on this scenario described in these two verses, the relationship with the Lord might have started off focused, but they've lost focus, and they're distracted, and the time of rebuilding and restoration of their faith has been put on hold. They have turned inward and away from the Lord, and even this phrase that it says, you yourselves, is emphasizing that they have now this self-interest in other things rather than living a God-centered life. That's the description of what's going on here. Their priorities are messed up. That's what it, it, it can be summarized as. It reminded me of a story which is great for this season since we're, we're just wrapping up Thanksgiving that a long time ago somebody shared this story with me and I looked it up and it's legit. And it comes from a, and a very, very old uh, radio personality that probably most people here have never heard of, but his name is Paul Harvey. I, I, there we got some fans, yes. I listened to Paul Harvey. I have these memories of my grandfather listening to him on the radio. And it was a story that, that, that this radio personality named Paul Harvey told this story uh, that happened around uh, Thanksgiving. And it was a story about uh, this time where a turkey company, I believe it was Butterball, uh, had, a, had a line that you could call for tips on how to cook a turkey. You could just call the line and, and they would give you some guidance on how to cook a turkey. And one person called this line and, and uh, asked about a turkey that had been sitting on the bottom of her freezer, not for one year or several years, but 23 years that turkey had been sitting on the bottom of her freezer. And the rep for this uh, turkey hotline told her that if your freezer never like, had a power outage or never dethawed, it's probably safe, assuming that it had been frozen for those 23 years. But the issue might not so much be safety, but quality. This thing is going to taste awful. It might not get you sick, but a 23-year-old frozen turkey is going to taste awful, and so the recommendation is that it's not worth the effort of cooking it. So the caller kind of paused and then finally replied, oh, that's, that's what I thought. I'll just, I'll give the turkey to the church. And that's how, that's how the call wrapped up, right? And one of the things I think about with that story is that, that there's something there that I think is, 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 is something that may be, more, be in more mature form and God's people Daniel Haggai's time, but it's like, that's a messed up priority, right? That's a messed up view of, of God and his church and, and, and just like, what he deserves in terms of your time and the first fruits of your affections and devotion and resources, that's, that, if it's anything, if that line means anything on that turkey hotline, it means that this person's priorities are out of whack. And that's what's happening in the book of Haggai as well. Their priorities are messed up. It's not that they didn't have the time, the resources, their energy to invest in their spiritual life. They just chose not to. So what's going to happen, and what is God going to do to get their attention? In fact, what we're about to read is God has been trying to get their attention. Look at verses 5 through 6 with me. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. So the Lord now asks his people to consider their life. 
Consider your life in light of the failure to rebuild the temple. And he says, you've been working hard. You're planting, but you don't have anything to harvest. You eat, but you're still hungry. You drink, but you're still thirsty. You put on clothes, but you're still cold. And then he says at the end there, you even earn an income, but it's like putting money into a purse with holes in it. It just falls off the other end. It's just one of those situations where you earn it, and it goes right to bills. You have nothing to show from it. And so this, it's this picture of just toil and work and just pouring your investment into your life, but you have nothing to show for it. You, there's no fruit from that. So what's going on here? And this is where the only way to appreciate these verses is to by getting a little bit more Old Testament background from chapters in the Old Testament like Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy 28. And to appreciate what's going on here, you have to remember this Old Testament word is really, really vital called covenant. And covenant means just a commitment between two parties. In this case, it's between God and God's people. You remember the Old Testament story that God saved his people from slavery, and then he made a commitment, a covenant with them that they would be committed to him and he to them and be called to a new way of life. And the way that the language of this covenant and this commitment is set up is that if they follow God, then they would be blessed with the good life. But if they disobey God, then they would be cursed. And here's an example of some of that language of being cursed by being disobedient to God's covenant. Deuteronomy 28:38 says, You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little, because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes, because worms will eat them. You will not have olive trees throughout your country, but you will, you will have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil, because the olives will drop off. You will have sons and daughters, but you will not keep them because they will go into captivity. And that verse 41, that last one, really describes exile. And that's what they just experienced, is that they were carried off into a different land, a different city, because they had been disobedient to the Lord. But there's all this other language that's being picked up again by the prophet Haggai, where he's saying, this is happening to you right now. You're doing all this work, all this toil, all this investment, but God is frustrating those efforts. Why? Because you are breaking his covenant. And what's, 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 what's amazing about what's happening here is that, that they went into exile because they were far away from the Lord, but now that they're back to God's place and God's land, they still are far away from the Lord, and God is trying to get their attention through these curses. Look at how it's unpacked further in verses 7 to 11. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be a little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord? Because my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because, you, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I've called out on the fields and on the mountains and on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else that the ground produces, on people and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. Notice that language from the covenant that's popping up again. So many of these verses continue to unpack that. You worked hard and you expected a lot, but in return, it turned out to be so little. It's a picture of work. 
It's a description of frustration and never getting ahead based on the effort that one is putting into something. And it's important to make sure that when you understand this covenant language of if you're obedient, you'll be blessed. If you're disobedient, you'll be cursed. That you don't turn this into some type of vending machine theology. What I mean by that is that, oh, if, I'm just, if, I, if I just put the coin in uh, and, and God is required to bless me, but if I don't, then I'll get a curse. It's, it's much more rich and relational than that, this covenant background. We must remember again that God saved his people by his grace. He forgave their sins and established this relationship with them by his unconditional love. So this covenant is with a people who, have, who are already his people, and he is their God. He's already committed to them. They're already in relationship, so they're not trying to do these things. They're not trying to rebuild the temple so that God could save them. They've already been saved. He's already been faithful to them. He's already after them with his unconditional love. It's not about that. It's about, it's about laying hold of what you already have, but you are so distracted with other things that you continue to miss the eternal joy right in front of your face. That's what's going on here. They're not working this, this angle so that they can get saved and that God would like them. God already loves them unconditionally. But they are so blind to this love and so distracted by other things that they don't experience it anymore. And even though they're returned from exile, they still are distant from his presence and from his love. That's what's going on here. Maybe a way to illustrate it is it's like being in the same room with somebody that loves you unconditionally, but you just don't pay any attention to that person. You're thinking about other tasks and things you have to do. You're distracted by your phone or whatever. You're in the room, but your priorities are so messed up that you actually don't enjoy the presence of the person with you who loves you dearly, and you're just so distracted by the other things in life that you're not investing in that relationship, even though it's right in front of you, available to you, and eager to take you back in to one's presence. That's what's going on. And how could somebody who loves you and is experiencing that neglect respond? Well, one response could be, well, they'll return the favor. You give me the silent treatment, I'm going to give you the silent treatment. You're going to ignore me, I'm going to ignore you. Or another way to do it, for those that are in these types of relationships, is that you pursue the person in love. You know they're distracted, you know they're not focused, you know they're neglecting you, so what you're going to do is you're going to pursue them. You're going to get their attention, and you're going to speak to them. And that's what the Lord does. His people are neglecting his love and his grace and his presence because they have reprioritized other things in their life and they are distracted even though God is there right in front of him. And, and so instead of just leaving alone and saying, I'm not going to be involved, like whatever, he gets involved and he gets their attention and he speaks to them. That's what's going on. And he wants them to revive their love for him. Notice in verse 8, this is what he says that they should do. He says, go up to the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. In other words, he's saying, change your life. Repent. This is what you've been doing, but you can stop doing that and reprioritize your life, putting me back at the center of it and start rebuilding your faith and my presence in your life. So how do they respond? And in verses, verses 12 through 15, Zerubbabel and, and Joshua, the priests, and all of God's people, it says, all the remnant, 
Obey the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. And then verse 13 says, Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the verses go on to say that God stirred up his people to start rebuilding the temple and rebuilding their faith yet again. So God gets their attention, and God gets their attention, and the response that God's people have is holistic. From the leaders all the way down to all the remnant that has returned, they start to reprioritize their life with God at the center, and they start to rebuild their faith again. And notice how both God's people are taking action, but God is also involved by stirring up their hearts again. And my favorite phrase in those verses came from verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to his people. I am with you. Don't miss that. He had always been there. He is with them, even when they neglected him, even when they prioritized other things in their life, even though that their faith was still in ruins. He is still there working, getting their attention, and speaking to them his word through his prophets. Advent is a season of anticipation and expectation. And one of the big titles for God that is uh, used in this season, and we sang of it already, is Emmanuel. And what that name and that title means is that God is with us. Even if you don't sense it, God is with you. Even if you're in a season, though your season has changed, that you're not maybe in the thick of a pandemic or unrest or division anymore, Nonetheless, you still find the change of scenery hasn't improved the quality of your faith. If that's you, God is with you. That's the gospel. God is so committed to his covenant with you that he sent his only son to die on the cross, to raise from the dead, and to continue to be involved in his people to this day. So if you feel distant, if you relate to the story that I haven't been investing in my faith, I haven't been rebuilding it, then the good news for you today isn't that God has checked out. The good news is that God is still with you. So how are you going to respond to that good news? And the call to you is the same as God's people heard in the book of Haggai. Just turn back. Start rebuilding. Start reprioritizing your faith and put me at the center of your life. I'm willing to be there and to be your joy, to be your everything. I have not left you. So if you find yourself this morning in your faith, needs to be rebuilt, that the presence of God in your life needs to be rebuilt. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ tells you God is with you to stir your heart up and your life up to do it as you commit to that task. It reminds me of what Jesus said in the Sermon of the Mount in the book of Matthew when he was speaking to God's people in their anxious heart that starts to commit to other things in life and to worry and to obsess and to toil about everything else in life, but they forget the first thing. They forget the main thing. And what does he say in Matthew 6, He says this, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added onto you as well. There's a lot of things to prioritize in life that gets our attention, that seeks to be the center of our life. And God says through the, his son, Jesus Christ, the first thing to prioritize is 
God's kingdom and his righteousness and let God take care of all those other things if you put him